All right, we are live. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Secular Jihadists. Um, once again, we have an amazing guest who's been here before recently, Catherine Shackdam. Now, for those who don't know, Catherine, a uh, very icy and controversial figure. <laughs> After uh, she spent uh, some time in Iran, you know, she changed some things about her mind and um, has written a lot for the Times of Israel. And some of these articles, you know, got picked up by uh, different Iranian groups. And they supposedly exposed her as a as, as an Israeli spy. Um, but uh, we're here to talk about an article she recently did for the Times of Israel, which I believe made the front page. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's called What We're Missing, What We've Missed About Iran on Its Ideology of Anti-Semitism and Why It Matters. And in this article, Catherine makes some very interesting assertions about um, the anti-Semitism within the ideology of Iran, how fundamental it is to the regime itself, and also how this um, affects her opinion about the JCPOA. And so it's fantastic to have Catherine back. Uh, it's so much fun. Hey, thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, interesting piece. So in this article, you like if I want to um, summarize it, you talk about how you think like uh, that that they in getting rid of the JCPOA deal was a good idea mm -hmm. because you think like based on your experience of the ideology that governs uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and whoever's all the people that are in charge and responsible are for decision making, you thought that anti-Semitic views is such a fundamental part of their ideas and part of their decision making that mm -hmm. it, there's no excuse that there should be no way for any path uh, for this government to anything nuclear related. Is that like a good is that like based the gist of the article? Would you would you agree with it, or is there what am I missing? Yes, I mean, what I really wanted people to understand is that you know when we talk about Iran and the the kind of narrative that they weaved around their state institutions, you know, is is profoundly rooted in anti-Semitism. Um, but it, it's the kind of anti-Semitism you know that we've witnessed in the 1930s, and that it speaks and calls for the genocide of an entire people, not just the state of Israel, and that is important. So the reference of, you know, death to America, death to Israel is not, as they often have claimed, you know, a, um, a reference to a state or, you know, the politics of a government. And it's directly to, you know, Israel here is like Jacob, as in, you know, biblical Jacob, as in the sons of Israel. So basically the Jews, um, you know, as, as a people. Um, this is what they're calling for. Um, and and I thought I think it's important that we understand the nature of the type of you know fascism that is coming out of Iran, if we you know ever have the hope to number one topple the regime, uh, or even number two, should you wish to do so, to engage with them as partners, because um, I believe it's important if you want to engage with another party to actually understand that party and make sure that there's no conceptual. Um, Kind of you know dichotomy in the way that you address them or could hope that they would understand the kind of agreement that you're entering um you know the, the kind of for example if you go back to the oslo agreements um you know rabin and arafat at the time had very different ideas of what that agreement meant on paper and i think that's that's why you know we are facing the kind of difficulty that we have today 
you know, at its you know on the conceptual level, they had very different understanding of what that meant. Um, and I think that we should not make the same mistake with Iran. We need to be very clear about what it is that they are and who they are and how they think. So that's why I thought it was important. And you know, um, you know, once again, you know, it's Ramadan, and you know, with the violence coming out of um, of Israel, the attacks that Palestinians have carried out against, you know, not only just holy sites but innocent civilians in the streets, uh, not just of Jerusalem but other cities across Israel. I think it was timely to kind of understand what is pushing that type of violence. Okay, but um, so what gave you, so there are things that they say and the things that they believe and mm -hmm. the things that they believe so fundamentally that governs everything that they do, right? And sometimes these three things are different. Um, yeah. I, I want to like, can you tell us like what gave you the impression that this is not just something that they fundamentally believe, but so, but what gave you the point of view that they are so eager to act upon these views to the point of being extremely dangerous for Israel? I've had, you know, during my stay in Iran, I had conversation, I, I traveled to Qom and Mashhad, and, you know, I sat down with several ayatollahs, you know, in the Hoda. So, you know, those people are basically teaching, you know, students in, you know, Islamic studies. So they're basically shaping the next, you know, religious class in Iran. Um, I've spoken to, you know, members of SEPA, I've spoken to members of, of parliament, I've spoken to members of the government. Um, and when they were trying to, when they were referring to Israel, a lot of the time they, you know, replaced the word Israel with the Jews. And I very quickly understood that by the state of Israel, they actually made a, an, as an extension, they meant, you know, the, the world Jewry. So for them, there's no distinction in between, you know, being an Israeli and being a Jew. It's the same thing. Um, and I think this is, this is uh, the link was made somewhere because, you know, Israel said that it is the home of the Jewish people, um, that it is for the Jewish people. And that in large, the Jewish community obviously supports Israel, uh, you know, for many great, you know, different reasons. But, you know, in large, you know, most Jews, you know, do agree that Israel needs to be and should be. Um, you know, except for maybe like the Nitroi Kata and they represent like a minority within the minority of a minority. Um, so for them, it's the same thing. And, and I think it's important that we talk about this because I feel that in the public discourse, you know, people uh, are under the belief that when Iran is referring to death to Israel, it's talking to a country and a political system as opposed to a people. And there's a large difference because that would mean that as far as our, you know, elective representative are concerned, that they're paying lip service to um, a government that is calling for genocide and actually allowing them to have a platform to do so. Um, so, you know, I, 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 f I felt that it was time to kind of um, ring the alarm a bit and tell people that you might want to pause for a second and understand what is it that they're saying so you know who you're talking to and the kind of ideology that they're supporting. Okay, so some people will suggest that at the end of the day, the main thing that they're interested in, like, so a lot of this anti-Israeli talk is not, it's mostly, a lot of it could be for gaining followers and appealing to the people's hatred for, mm -hmm. you know, Israel or Jewish people, appealing to that to show themselves as champion um, of the fight against you know, Zionism or defenders of the Palestinian people. And that is the front. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. but their main agenda the actual agenda is survival and strength and power mm -hmm. and and these people as as religious and fanatic they as they are they're not idiots i mean they are strategic that's why i mean hey, that's arguable in some in, in certain things they are idiots <laughs> susanna's laughing she's <laughs> but i mean they are strategic enough to have been able to survive for the past 40 years 43 years against all everybody trying to remove them from power like they have been successful at that and yeah i don't know if are... it's a sign of intelligence I, I think it's just a sign that the oppressive tools that they're using against their own people are working i, I would not equate this to a sign of intelligence or even a sign that this system is somewhat um mm -hmm. viable i think it's but... just fascism it's just the expression of fascism and fascism works you know, um, you know, to some extent for a period of time. I mean, Nazi Germany wasn't really successful, but it worked for a little bit, you know, because it was using, you know, specific tools of propaganda and oppression uh, and, and kind of like, you know, the engineering consent. And I think this is exactly what the regime has done. Um, okay, but they yeah, are, so yeah, they're not, just okay, okay, but, okay, but would you agree, okay, that they are at least intelligent enough to know that an attack, a direct attack, mm -hmm. like going confrontational war with Israel or mm -hmm. using nuclear weapons against Israel mm -hmm. would be their last day, their last day in power. Like that would be the end of them. They, okay, they know so that. Yeah. I, I do, I do, I, I would give you this. What, what I do agree with is I don't believe for a second that Iran would want to have, you know, a frontal attack against Israel and, you know, you know, with this military. Uh, number one, because I think that the entire Islamic world has been traumatized by the Six Days War, um, because, you know, the Israeli had like three spoon of fork and a tank and they managed to wipe out six arms, no, seriously, uh, you know, several Arab armies um, that were rather, you know, powerful back then. Uh, Egypt and Iraq were, you know, a military superpower at the time. And Israel, which is like the size of a peanut on the map, just managed to wipe them out in six days, unheard of in history. Um, and I think that Iran understands that it's not in the position to uh, declare war on Israel and maybe face the possibility um, of, you know, a massive failure and basically end up being the, the laughing stock of history, because it would be, and the Islamic world. Uh, now, coming from, you know, a Shia perspective and being a minority within the Islamic world, this is not something that they want to see happen because it would literally dilute the entire narrative, uh, you know, and this idea that God is sitting with, you know, the person uh, defending the, the oppressed against the oppressor. They would lose that narrative. Um, so they can't do it. But by the same token, they also understand that, you know, should they obtain a nuclear weapon, they would be in a much greater position to, you know, push terrorist organizations such as Hamas, Hezbollah, and all the rest of them, uh, you know, to put so much pressure on Israel that, you know, Israel would become not only a pariah state because they would be playing, you know, the victimhood of the, of the Palestinians against Israel on the international scene, trying to isolate Israel from its current partners, uh, playing the anti-Semitic card and literally, um, you know, hijacking, again, the public discourse and playing anti-Semitism as like the norm because it's becoming the norm in a lot of, you know, in a lot of places now. Uh, it's it's uh, people feel entitled some, somewhat to be quite openly anti-Semitic, uh, you know, and, and sometimes even, you know, 
in, in, in Congress or, you know, the U.S. Parliament. So this is something that is becoming the norm. Um, this is, again, this is, this is Iran's indirect influence. So for them, obtaining a nuclear weapon would allow them, number one, to become the superpower of the region against Saudi Arabia and claiming, you know, supremacy over the Islamic world in terms of guidance, religious guidance, politically and geopolitically, because they would be able to, you know, act as a massive buffer against the influence of, of um, not only European countries, but America, and basically have free hand in Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Bahrain, Kuwait, you name it, it's there, um, and dismantle the GCC alliance you know, by, again, kind of, uh, you know, forcing Qatar to come, you know, to align with Iran and leaving Saudi Arabia, Emirates, uh, and those countries to be kind of uh, on the back foot of everything. So for them, it's not just about destroying Israel. They do want that. And, you know, I think that um, ultimately that's their goal, because you have a bunch of, you know, religious ideologues that are so hardcore, who still believe to this very day that nuking Israel would actually allow for, you know, Imam Mahdi to come back. Um, and, and precipitate the end times, which they want to see. I heard that. I heard that. This is the language coming out of, you know, Ahmadinejad's camp. So they believe that. So on the off chance that they would want to actually act out that scenario that they played out in their heads, do you seriously want to sign a GCPOA? The answer should be no and always be no. And the problem is when you're dealing with a country that is based on a dangerous and radical religious ideology, why would you even entertain the possibility, even if it's just a fraction of a percent, to have a, a weapon such as that of, a, you know, to become a nuclear power? A nuclear weapon is not a joke. Uh, and I think that, you know, even like the, we need to debate, you know, as to whether, you know, even secular democracy should have that kind of power. Uh, never mind, never mind the Islamic Republic of Iran. I mean, you know, the, the idea that, we could even imagine that they would be a genuine partners in brokering peace, um, for me, um, is the very definition of, of what insanity is. Um, you, can't, you can't do that. You can't even imagine a moment in time where that would be okay. I don't care, you know, the, the, Iran would, be to, would need to change so dramatically uh, in terms of, you know, its ideology, the, its, its state institution, the way that it thinks, the way that it is, the, you know, the, the way that it kind of... Um, portray itself within the region in its relationships with other countries, you know, for us to even begin to think that it would, it might be okay one day. Okay. I do want to touch upon uh, the JCPOA. I want to, I want to do uh, go into that angle, but before um, I comment on what you said about that. Um, so my understanding about what you said is that a nuclear Iran, and we're not talking a nuclear for like peaceful reasons. We're talking about, mm -hmm. Nuclear, like, because we nuclear don't, armament, nu not nuclear well, energy. Well, my my view is that they don't want to actually. They want to be a week away from having a nuclear weapon. Like they would want to have the deterrent effect of being one step away from a nuclear weapon, but not actually having it pieced together as a nuke because that will yeah. in invite well, a million sanctions on them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me cut you there because there's, there's something that we said in Iran just literally days ago. Um, I don't know if right. you're familiar with the guy called Ali Mutahari. He's the I um, yep, just heard of it. Music guy to uh, inform me. He's of the that. head. He's the head of yeah. like the, the voices of Iran or something like this party, the voices of the people. Um, he's a reformist. He's, he's a reformist. Yeah, he's he's one of those. Uh, he's he's Ali Larinjani's like brother-in-law. So you know, yeah. it, it kind of tells you that of, nepotism the is a thing in Iran. 
and the son of the uh, great uh, Mortezoma Tahiri. There you before. go. So yeah. this guy literally came out and blew the whistle. Uh, I mean, it's not a big surprise, but you know, he he's, he was rather clear on you know what what Iran's goal is in terms of its nuclear pursuit, so, and it's so definitely a military. He, said, he came so, out with so it. For people, he said it. Yeah. But uh, so Catherine, before him, so yes, um, he came out and said, like, obviously we wanted a nuclear weapon. And before him, um, I think Susanna and I broke the news that IRGC admitted that they, they were mm -hmm. doing that. And even before both of these people, we had leaked audio of Fakhrizadeh. Uh, many years ago, claiming that that is their mission, like in right? Early two thousands, like I think that audio was from like two thousand three. I know, yes. and, and my question is, like, when do you know when people tell you who they are and what they want? Listen, believe them, believe them, because you know they, they just told you, and and even if you don't, you have to because this is what they're saying. So yeah, but uh, but what I'm saying does not contradict all of this. What I'm saying is that they, it's kind of like they want to have a nuclear weapon. That mm -hmm. is not put together, but you could immediately put it together. Mm -hmm. Basically, they because they think if they put it together, they will have the world world sanctions come raining down upon them. But it's mm -hmm. effectively they it's just a technical thing. They actually have a they want to be in a situation that they effectively have a nuclear mm -hmm. weapon, but they're only like every, at any point they're just weak away from having it. That's what mm -hmm. they want. I mean, that would be the most, I, I mean, I don't know if that's what they want, but that would be the most strategic things because at the same time they have it, but they technically legally don't have it. So I think that but would be the most strategic like But it doesn't work like this anymore. So for example, like your, your, you know, this theory would work if we were back in the 1950s and like, you know, the Cuban mm -hmm. crisis. Uh, because back then, you know, it would take hours, for example, for, you know, a missile to, to ever hit, let's say, New York or Miami, whatever, you know, city in the U.S., you know, from the Soviet Union. Um, because the technology was not there. Like, you had you had a, a response time. So you could see it coming, and then many things could happen, right? We don't have that luxury anymore. So if, if Iran, you know, today was to decide to assemble a nuclear weapon, uh, I doubt that they would give you a countdown and say, hey, oh, by the way, we're doing that. So next Monday, that's oh, what's yeah. going to happen. They won't do that, obviously. Right. Um, by the time that, you know, should we learn that uh, something has been launched is because it already landed. This is how quick, you know, the missile would be. So it would be like a, you know, a fraction of a second and would, it would blow up Tel Aviv and then everything is over. Why would you want, because by the way, let's be clear, Israel would be first in line to take it. They would not, you know, they would not go after America or whatever. They would want to make a point. Um, yeah. So as far as Israel is concerned, that cannot happen. As far as the rest of the world is concerned, that should not happen because that would be you would you would then normalize the possibility of a genocide, you know, and, and basing it on the they might be nice and not do it. But what if they do? What if, you know, uh, Ali, uh, Ali Khamenei dies tomorrow and then someone else that is even more psychotic comes in power? What do we do then? Knowing that we have allowed, you know, the possibility of, an, uh, of you know, Iran assembling a weapon in a week. What if the regime falls tomorrow morning and then we end up with a Taliban-like, you know, government instead? You know, so many scenarios could happen when it comes to Iran. We need to understand that the regime as it stands might look stable from the outside and have survived several decades. It's not going to survive the next four decades. So when you sign an international agreement, such as that of the nuclear deal, you need to think and project yourself 50 years down the line. As it stands today, Iran is not uh, a genuine partner in brokering peace on the basis of the instability it has fomented in the region 
and the very nature of its institution and ideology. And that's the point I'm trying to make. Um, and it's not, I'm not passive judgment on Iranians uh, or even suggesting that the Iranians people, you know, want to genocide the rest of the world because that is not the case. But the regime that governs them is profoundly maniacal in its, in its understanding of the world. It's all about black and white and, you know, thinking that, you know, if they lose, then we win. And if they win, then we are the losers of the story. Not understanding that Israel can exist outside the zero-sum game and that Israel's, you know, flourishing as a society and a nation doesn't take away from their religion or even, you know, the ideology. Because quite frankly, Israel does not give a shit about Iran. If Iran could just, like, let go and let Israel alone. You know, what you have to say is really interesting to me. It reminds me a lot of things that Masih Linajad has said. For those who don't know, Masih Linajad is an Iranian-American journalist, and the FBI last year revealed a plot to kidnap her from American soil, transport her to Venezuela, and then transport her for to Iran, where she would be in a whole world of trouble. Um, and when that plot was revealed by the FBI, it was around the time that... Um, America was re-entering into the nuclear talks. And she said something that really stuck with me um, because she was speaking out kind of about the way that America was re-entering these negotiations. And she was basically saying like, we, our attitude, meaning our meaning America's attitude towards entering these negotiations is fundamentally flawed because mm -hmm. we keep on entering into relationship or entering into interaction with the Iranian regime as if, if we just treat them a certain way, like they will be nicer. If we treat mm -hmm. them a certain way, they will do the right thing. They will do the moral thing. And she was basically saying like politicians in our government, our administrations need to understand that this is the, this is fundamentally the nature of the Iranian regime. It mm -hmm. is not, they don't do hostage diplomacy because they're just backed into a corner and they have no other options. No, this is fundamentally who they are and they're not going to stop. It has been their modus operandi from the beginning. This is not about treating them better. Like this is the fundamental nature of the regime. And so the way that you speak about it really um, recalls kind of her criticism. I agree with her. I, you know, I think she's on point. And, and I mean, she knows better than me. She's, you know, she's actually Iranian. So she, 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 really, she really lived the reality of the regime. She understands mm -hmm. it better than most. Um, mm -hmm. I, I agree with her. I think we have, it's, it's um, you know, we, we got lost in translation in, in that I think that the West is always projecting, you know, its own cultural background and the way that we think onto, you know, um, the, the partners that they may have, you know, throughout the world, you know, failing to understand that not everyone sees things the way they do. Mm -hmm. And I think, it, especially with America, there's this form of exceptionalism where, you know, you, you kind of been led to believe that the rest of the world not only looks up to you, but thinks like you or ought to think like you. And that if you behave with them, you know, within the line of your thinking, then they would automatically align with you. That's not the case. And, and Iran is a, is a much older nation and it's not going to change its ways in five minutes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, but it, if you if you you know agree with that that stance or that attitude um, towards the regime, which I'm inclined to, it leads to a whole nother question, which is how do you deal with such a bad actor when you fundamentally do not think that there is the 
um, willingness to act in good faith, period. Good question. I think we should. But first of all, we should. Uh, I tell you what we should not do because I don't know what we should do because it's. it's, <laughs> I think it's uh, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, but we shouldn't pay again lip service to Iran's narrative when it comes to anti-Semitism uh, and mm. and our failure to recognize that you know Hamas, Hezbollah, and all the other iterations of, of, of terror are actually acting you know as a, as as extensions and it's almost the, the colonial expression of the Iranian regime. We need to get clear on that. We need to um, to kind of separate the issue that is the Palestinian dossier with uh, you know Palestine liberation movement as as expressed by Iran and and Hamas. We need to understand that. So we need to to look at Hamas and the Palestinians as two different entities, uh, and that one doesn't represent the other at all. Uh, you know, if anything, I think that Palestinians have been completely like you know um, hijacked by. Hamas agenda and Hamas does not care for Palestinians, does not want them to be free, however that is formulated, uh, and is not interested in resolving any of the issue because that would mean that it would disappear and cease to exist because it would, it would have no reason to be. Um, by the same token, I don't believe that Hamas wants a, a frontal, again, um, um, doesn't want to have um, a confrontation with Israel in terms of like fighting a great war. It doesn't want to do that. First of all, it cannot do that. It doesn't have the popular support to do so. And again, even should they win or lose, should they lose, they're done. But should they win, in you know, it, it would not happen. But let's just say for, you know, um, hypothetically, if that was to happen, what would happen then on, on you know, on day number two? Uh, they would cease to exist because, you know, the whole narrative is based on the hatred of the other. So if you remove Israel, Hamas is non-existent. They stop, they stop, they, you know, so they need Israel to exist. The other, the, but it's not true the other way around. Israel doesn't need Hamas to exist or Hezbollah to exist. It doesn't need an enemy to exist. Um, you know, terror groups need an enemy to exist. And you know, what a better enemy than the Jewish people? Um, I mean, some people could argue there are certain elements. Well, not Israel as it, entirely, but there are certain groups within Israel that need Hamas to be powerful. That may be so, but again, we're talking about, you know, um, you, you could tell, but that, that is true for any society or any nation. You're always going to find, you know, a radical elements that act in reaction of, who weaved again their ideology around the, you know, the, um, the rejection of the other. Um, you know, understanding the identity in the rejection, in the rejection of other people, uh, you know, to justify their own existence. Um, that's true all the time. Uh, but it's not true and large in Israel. Israel is a, is a rather, I would say, liberal society in that, you know, it's, it's uh, committed to, uh, you know, religious freedom and, and allowing as much as possible, um, you know, people, you know, people from different communities and, and ethnicities to, to cohabit together in, uh, you know, as part of the greater whole. Um, you know, only 72% of the population in Israel is actually Jewish. You know, that tells you that, you know, it's not just, you know, um, it is a Jewish state, but not just for the Jewish people. It's making room for others, um, but you can't ask for you know of Israel to tolerate you know terrorism or actually making room for people calling for the genocide of its people. It's not going to happen. Okay, whether and whether it's okay for Israel to be a Jewish state and what does that mean? Let's have another uh, episode. Yeah, that, that's that's the whole like you know question of Jewish identity. What are we and who are we? Yeah. And we don't have more than tells. So there's that. To stop. Okay, yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, yeah, but, but that much but, is confirmed. That, that, <laughs> that, that, no, but like we have to start somewhere, okay? So let's just like, like this is like, you know, this is like the cornerstone of any further discussion. No horns and no tails. And and we are not li lizards. That's it. 
that's important. I just want to put it out. Okay, but no offense to anybody that has horns and tails because that's pretty cool. Okay? Obviously, Couture. obviously. Yeah. I, I'm, right. I, that's fine. That's fine. But we, we, yeah. no, we don't yeah, do that. Okay. <laughs> but if you happen to watch and you happen to have those, in case there's any <laughs> demons who watch us, we, we don't mean any offense. Um, <laughs> but, okay, just to be clear, before I move to the JCPOA, because I want to... Um, ask you some questions about that. So, Don, my let me know if this is a good analysis. Okay, the current regime in power in Iran, even if they had nuclear weapons, they they would not. They're not current. They they wouldn't. The likely scenario is that Israel would not be. So the danger is something else. So the danger is not that they would use it against Israel. The danger is twofold. One. Because of the sense of protection that the Islamic Republic of Iran would feel for having a nuke, they would become more aggressive with their proxies against Israel because they know they're immune from attacks because now people will not touch them because they have nukes. That's mm -hmm. one threat against Israel. The second threat against Israel is that the Iranian government, being a fascist state, could collapse and all of a sudden now these nukes would be in the hands of a whole bunch of um, end of times, not jobs that mm -hmm. are less like the Islamic Republic of Iran who wants power and stability and survival and more to bring the end of days kind of people. And that's the second type of threat that could be to Israel. These mm -hmm. are the threats that Israel will face. Mm -hmm. would, that, would that be a yeah. good summary of it? That's, that's true. And then, and then on top of this is a third threat to the region as a whole, because obviously Saudi Arabia would not just, you know, sit kindly you know, to nuclear Iran. So you stand the chance of having, you know, nuclear proliferation. And it would be very, you would be hard pressed to convince, you know, Mohammed bin Salman, for example, that he cannot or should not buy a nuclear weapon. Never mind building one, uh, but, you know, actually buying one because, you know, the neighbors, um, you know, have one. Of course, he's going to want to have them. So, you know, again, you would, it, it would, it would throw the whole region into chaos. And do you seriously want in the Middle East to have some kind of a nuclear race? You know, in countries that, you know, are profoundly, you know, broken and unstable, you know, with, you know, dangerous ideologies like literally running rampant. Again, the answer is no, we do not want that. I just love watching Susanna's reactions to the suggestions that you make. She's like, oh, no. I literally <laughs> clutched my pearls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, so then you want uh, do you want to add anything before we I move to the GCPOA questions? No. Oh no, I'm ready for this tip for Tad. I'll just moderate. <laughs> and, okay, so with regards to the GCPOA, um, the argument is that moving. So, okay, the goal the goal is to avoid having an Iran with nuclear weapons, right? Mm -hmm. Some people mm -hmm. say. Well, that was the entire point of the GCPOA. Like the, anybody who suggests, like, oh, we shouldn't have a deal with Iran because Iran shouldn't have a, we shouldn't have a nuclear deal with Iran because Iran shouldn't have nuclear weapons. People are like, yeah, that the JCPOA was meant to prevent them from having a nuclear weapon. That was the point. Yeah, but it won't. That's the thing. So because the JCPOA, as it was brokered and negotiated, is a joke. I mean, the latest joke was that, um, you know, they had to have some kind of a moderator or someone to kind of check up on them to make sure that, you know, they were going to do what they were going to do according to the terms of the treaty. Guess, guess who volunteered to that task? Russia. I'm sorry, but like, no. Th this is like, you know, it's like a, re a bad remake of the Joker movie. Like, no. 
you're not going to have, seriously, you're not going to have Russia, who just invaded Ukraine, by the way, behaving like a fascist state, um, you know, to uh, to say like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, I'm just going to, you know, make sure that, you know, they behave. Yeah, I believe you. I 100% believe you, of course. Like, no. Sorry, but no. Um, okay, but so some people will say like, as you, you could call it a joke, but it was working because, and the proof is that, okay, here's the thing. Okay, so the proof is, so people say like, this is between bad options. We're picking the least bad, okay? So without the deal, so as soon as the deal was removed by Trump, Iran managed to push so fast, push forward for enriching uranium to levels that was unimaginable under the deal because the deal was removed. So they're saying like, oh, you removed the deal so that Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran gets lesser, you know, less farther away from having nuclear mm -hmm. weapon. Mm -hmm. Look at the effects. It's a man without the deal. It managed managed to now go up all the way up to enriching uranium to sixty percent, having um, all the equipment and knowledge mm -hmm. and experience now that it will be impossible now to remove. So they're saying, as bad as the deal was, it was the best you could you, we could have gotten it, and without it, we have we are now years closer to Iran being have being able to make nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. I disagree. Let me tell you why. Because okay. first of all, when, when Trump reneged on, on the deal, and that's true, you know, Iran then decided to say, hey, hey I'm just going to go back to enriching uranium, right? Um, we can't, you can't deduct that because Trump reneged on the deal, that this is why, as a reaction to that, this is why Iran did what it did. Because we don't know that for a fact. I mean, we could have signed the deal and they would have done that underground and we would not know about it. Okay. Uh, so the fact that we know about it is, 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 is a better option. Okay. Now, uh, as a result of this, it basically allowed for Israel to kind of take out, you know, a few strategic, uh, you know, sites. I mean, they kind of, uh, you know, every time that Iran is doing like one step forward, you know, Israel intervenes and then it's like, you know, three step back and one on the side and they do Egypt. Um, so Israel is kind of keeping, you know, taps on, on Iran and doing a great job, by the way. Thank you. Uh, you know, the world should say thank you, but whatever. Um, thank you, know, you keeping, Mossad. Yeah, thank I think, you, yeah, yeah. No, seriously, like, thank you, like, <laughs> again, Mossad, anyone. Um, uh, you know, to, to, uh, to control and contain Iran's nuclear, like, you know, development program. So, you know, this is, this is what is happening because, because the deal was not brokered. Should the deal have been brokered, you would basically have countries hand-tied to that, to that agreement uh, without anyone being able to kind of, you know, keep tabs on them because they would be literally asleep thinking, we signed a deal, great, let's go sell cars and carpets to Iran and, you know, like let them re-enter the economy. So I think that because the deal wasn't signed, uh, we forced Iran to kind of show their hands uh, and actually tell us exactly who they are. Second of all, because of Trump's decision, and I wasn't like, I'm not, you know, trying to uh, campaign for Trump, so that we're clear. Uh, you know, the sanction that he slapped on the RSGC and all the rest of them really set the tone in terms of uh, strangling Iran and preventing its ability to spread further in the region. So in my mind, reneging the nuclear deal was the best thing that could happen to the region because it forced Iran's hand, number one. It showed us exactly what it is that they wanted to do. Because don't tell me that, you know, it was just, oh, you know, you were mean to me today, so I'm just going to go and enrich uranium just to show you. That's not true. That's that They wanted to do that the whole time. It's just that now they had to accelerate the way that they were doing it 
because they're thinking, shit, we're running out of time. They're not buying what we're saying, saying like, oh, we want to be your friends now. So, you know, I think that, you know, to, to a great degree, Trump really kind of like, you know, lifted the veil and forced Iran to kind of say, well, this is what we look like, you know, where we're not pretending to be your friends, truly. Well, I mean, okay, um, so the argument... The argument is not that we didn't know that they want that. I mean, the point of the deal was there because we knew they want that. So that was that we're trying to hold them back. You're like, it's not a revelation that they wanted that, right? So the whole deal was the deal was like, you, you, we're not, we're, we're going to try to stop you from doing what we know you want to do, right? So, and we also understand that you can't trust the Islamic Republic of Iran and what they tell mm-hmm. you. So we understand mm-hmm. that. The and the point, and also we understand that even with the deal, they would try to get away with stuff um, underground. We have evidence that they have been trying to, um, even while the observers were at the sites that they were supposed to be observed that are observing, they were trying to do things in other places uh, that was not under observation. We also know that, but we're trying to look at the options that we have. This the difference is that with the deal, you had some eyes on the ground. And yes, Iran could have also continue to try to do get away with enriching uranium anyways, mm-hmm. but it would it was extremely more difficult. Um, but not impossible. Not, no, no, yeah, I, I know, I know. We're trying to we look we're trying to look at the I'm not saying this was a the deal was fun, like the the best like the deal was not perfect, okay? But it made it made it so difficult that it was Iran was not able to get away with like this level of enrichment of uranium. Like it, we know it tried to sneak do some sneaky things without people the world noticing, even while mm-hmm. it was supposed mm-hmm. to be under the deal. Mm-hmm. But enriching uranium to sixty percent requires such high level of advanced technology, and it would not be something that it could get away with doing it without being noticed, right? So it would have slowed it down significantly. It would have made it. It has it had made it very difficult, right? And also, the argument is not like, oh, we're do- they're enriching uranium because oh, you're mean to us, so this is our revenge. Technic, no, the argument is that well, they don't have to like. There's no, they, there's nothing, there's nothing that stopped like before. There was, they would be um, against the deal if they enriched uranium. Their hands were tied if they wanted to enrich uranium beyond what the deal allowed. It was very difficult for them to do it in a sneaky way. But now mm-hmm. that they're not in the deal, they, they're enriching uranium, not just because, oh, because, oh, you're mean to us. We want to take revenge. They're like, well, because there's legally, they're not, a, there's no art, there's no deal that they have to abide to by. Mm-hmm. There's nothing stopped. Legally, they're in their rights. So when Trump threw the deal out, legally, they were in now in the right to enrich uranium. They were not violating any international laws anymore because there's no deal that they're, violating anymore so that opened their hands to all of a sudden speed up to not to higher levels of enrichment uranium but also Mm -hmm. to some experience and knowledge they have access to like even the the equipment that they have right now and the enriched uranium that they have right now they could a new deal can can potentially take that away from them but what now what they have right now that no deal can take away is the ex- the new experience and the knowledge that they have gained to mm. do these things again because of the deal was removed no new deal can take that away from them and that's the disaster that i think we are in that might be we are be in because of trump removing that deal right and another thing that moving the the, the removal of the deal did 
is that they managed to get a huge international propaganda win because they made they were made to look like they are the victim. They were like, look, we were up, they agreed to something, we were abiding by the deal. They came and violated the deal that we had agreed to. And mm-hmm. we were we were on the right. They these pe- Americans can, apparently cannot hold on to the deals that they have signed to, while the Iranian government is. So internationally, this was such, a lot of people think that this was such a win for the Islamic Republic of Iran because they got the propaganda win while also be able opening their hands to be able to enrich uranium to such high levels. What would and you think? I, I, I don't think I, I get what you're saying, and and to some extent, some of the things that you're saying are true, but. Um, bear in mind that, you know, I, I don't think it was a win for Iran, maybe in terms of his propaganda, but, you know, because of, you know, because of what he did, Trump managed to literally, um, you know, suffocate um, the Islamic Republic. So that means that he he helped, you know, um, take down by, you know, quite a large amount Iran's ability, you know, to uh, project his narrative outside onto the world because they don't have the money to do so. So he, he literally kind of like shrunk Iran's ability to do harm to the rest of the world. And that is a significant win for me because a nuclear deal would have meant uh, a lifting of the sanctions and it would have benefited not just not not just the Iranian people because that I'm for, but it would have benefited the RSGC. Uh, the fact that, you know, Trump listed the RSGC as a, as a terrorist organization crippled Iran and make it so very difficult to function. Uh, so I think those were good things. Um, and yes, you know, maybe that now, you know, Iran gain, you know, a certain knowledge. But again, if that means that we're chipping and eroding at the very fabric of, of uh, the Islamic Republic, I think that is a win because we can't, you can't be helping a regime, a fascist regime to, you know, to have longevity. And I think a nuclear deal would do that. If you were optimistic enough to think that, you know, they would never get a nuclear weapon and that we contain them, you would, you know, buy them at least a good two decades, um, you know, of longevity. And that in my book, that's not happening to the Iranian people. You can't ask them to, you know, to to live under that regime for another two decades. Okay, uh, so um, I'm pushing back against everything. (laughs) So um, the pushback against that, the the narrative against that would be um, that the sanctions that you're mentioning didn't actually hurt the elements of the Islamic Republic of Iran that are responsible for the things that you want stopped. Like, for example, the meddling that they're doing in the region, it actually might have economically helped them. It actually, what it hurt was Iranian, the, the civilians. It's They suffered because of the sanctions. But the IRGC, the, you know, the and the Quds army, they actually financially benefited from the sanction because no, no well, data, well, let, data let, tells you that it's not. Yes, they, they because they you know they, they land grab they took they took basically money away from the people. So you know they took no no no. Let me, let me give you that. No no. Let me give you what the narrative is, and then you tell me why it's wrong. Okay. The argument is that in Iran, the IRGC has a whole controls a whole bunch of the economy and a mm-hmm. lot of industries, right? Mm-hmm. And Without the sanctions, they have to compete with international um, industries, organizations. But with the sanctions, cutting off trade from the rest of the world, the IRGCs and the, and the industries that it controls in Iran, 
it managed to have a monopoly without any without any international competition, and that actually made them have a bigger hold over Iran's economy and made them economically stronger because of the lack of com- international trade and competition. So mm-hmm. economically, yes, Iran shrunk, but the relative economic uh, size of the IRGC relative to its people and and therefore its control over Iranian people had increased, and that was such a gift to the to to IRGC. It would have happened anyway. That that's the thing because look, the, basically, because I think that it's very difficult for Western, you know, for the West to actually understand what the RSGC is because a lot of the time they just think it's this like paramilitary group. The RSGC is literally a state within the state. This is the best definition I could I could give of it, in the sense that you know you have the regular army and then you have the RSGC. Uh, you know, within the RSGC, you have uh, um, a, a, a shadow judicial system. Uh, you have, you know, the paramilitary group, intelligence services, uh, and and Basij, which acts as the paramilitary of the RSGC in terms of spying on civilians. So in Iran, you have a two-speed, you know, um, society in that you have the the regular judicial run by the Ministry of Justice, and then you have the RSGC judicial system that is completely different from the normal legal system in Iran. And that goes for every facet of society where they have their own jails within, you know, the government jails and nobody can tell them how to run it. Um, the legal system is completely different, you know, when it comes to RSGC. When it comes to them running a shadow economy to that of the government, uh, a lot of the time, by the way, they run contrary to national interest uh, and ministers cannot do anything against the RSGC because they have more powers than ministers. Um, and, you know, they, they have a special status and they have monopolies on certain industries. Um, the VPN, for example. So in Iran, you can't have access to social media, right? So, you, you know, most Iranians have to use a VPN <clears throat> to be able to, uh, you know, to, you know, get access to Facebook, Twitter, whatever, uh, YouTube. Now, the VPN companies, you know, offering those services are actually run by the RSGCs uh, because, you know, they created a system to then benefit and, you know, make millions and millions of dollars of it. And on top of it, you know, you know, cherry on the cake, they get to spy on their people for free. I mean, people literally pay for the RSGC to spy on them. Um, that tells you that regardless of, you know, sanctions, no sanctions, that would have happened. Because, again, this is part of the structure of, uh, of the regime and how Ayatollah Khomeini actually imagined, um, you know, the best way he could protect himself and create a buffer around him that would isolate him and insulate him from any type of opposition. So that means that in Iran today, the army is almost crippled uh, and they can't do anything against the RSGC. Uh, you know, if, minister, if, for example, the Ministry of Justice disagree with the judge who is part of the RSGC, there's nothing he can do say, you know, the RSGC will do whatever it needs to do. So I don't think for a second that, you know, sanctions have prevented, uh, you know, this kind of healthy competition that you're talking about. Because, again, you're thinking with a Western mind in terms of what that means to enter, like, you know, the world markets and allowing companies to come in in the country and to operate and have like, you know, um, kind of a solid, you know, uh, competition rules. It doesn't apply to Iran because what would have happened is that the RSGC would have forced certain sponsorships and literally grab hold of certain industries, forcing the international communities to play by its rule and then gaining even more power and money. Um, So the only thing that we have done is slow down that process. And grant you, it hurts, you know, millions of Iranians and, um, it's, it's a catastrophe and it's a tragedy in itself. Uh, but those were the weapons that we had at our disposal to try to, uh, you know, short of military interventionism, to try to 
encourage the people of Iran to kind of rise up against the regime. And I'm really not advocating sanctions here because I think it's, it's disgusting because it's harming innocent people that have asked for nothing. Um, but I understand the rationale behind it. I'm not trying to justify, I understand it. And I'm telling you, and this is, you know, data actually shows you that, you know, without this sanction, things would have been much worse. The problem that we have is that we see the pain that Iranians are suffering and we feel guilt and we should because we are responsible for that pain. And we're thinking, you know, I want to stop this. But the only way you can stop that pain and the suffering of Iranian people is get rid of the regime. That's it. There's, uh, you know, we could discuss it all day. At the end of the day, they have to go. Once they're gone and we can have a democratic discourse, then Iran has a chance at actually like rejoining the rest of, of the international community and become, you know, uh, productive members of society again. Susanna, you had some questions? Oh my gosh. Well, I mean, Catherine just is like, got me thinking on so many different levels. Um, I want to, so we were previously talking about, you know, the, the original deal and then pulling mm -hmm. out and the benefits of that or not. But I think it'd be interesting to talk about the most recent round of negotiations or trying to re-enter the deal, particularly in regard to the IRGC, because the recent round of negotiations kind of revealed that a major sticking point, like what I'm hearing is that things are near completion, but there is the sticking point regarding the sanctioning of the IRGC. Mm -hmm. And I don't know to what extent this was leaked or to what extent it's just public, but it was revealed that there is actually talk of removing the IRGC from the, you know, terrorist designation list. And um, this caused huge outrage when this was kind of revealed. And I mean, Israel started immediately kicking up its feet. <laughs> and even um, in the U.S. Congress, I mean, Republicans were outraged. U.S. Democrats were also just, you know, kicking up their heels. Um, I was curious about what you thought about this seeming like sticking point in the newest deal. Okay, so, you know, when we're talking about delisting the RSGC from the terror list, that essentially means like, you know, in practical terms, that would you, you would unfreeze um, something between 50 to 70 billions of dollars worth of assets. Um, so if we, if we take into account the fact that, you know, the RSGC is responsible for funding Hezbollah, Hamas, the war in Syria, you know, PMU in, in, uh, in Iraq and intervening in countries such as Yemen, Bahrain, um, you know, the, the Eastern province of Qatif in Saudi Arabia and, you know, or, you know, wherever there is unrest, you know, Iran, you know, is very often behind it. Um, do we seriously want to add 70, between 50 to 70 billion worth of assets to that ability to, uh, you know, to disrupt and cause harm? I would hope not. Um, and also from a kind of legal standpoint, you you cannot dilute, you know, this idea that, you know, when organizations are put on the terrorists, that it's then a political decision to take them in and out. It mm -hmm. has to be an, an, a profound ideological change. Mm -hmm. The narrative hasn't changed. So, you know, why should we? I mean, and I think it's important because, look, words matter. So you come, for example, you know, would anyone make the argument today that Al-Qaeda is not a terrorist organization today because politically it's uncomfortable and we would like to move, you know, away from that? Uh, I hope not because, you know, that would be tr you trying to reframe reality, you know, uh, on a different plane. And the reality is it is a terrorist organization. 
um, because the narrative is a terrorist narrative. Now, the RSGC is the extension of a fascist uh, and genocidal uh, ideology, and it is a terrorist organization. You know, whether people can do whatever it is that they try, can try to rationalize however way they want, that this is the reality um, that we are in today. So unless, again, there's a profound kind of like either mea culpa or change, exorcism, I don't care what it is that they need to do to change that seriously, to change that, um, they need to be on the terror list. And you can't, you cannot make a political argument to say we need to delist them because that would make things a lot easier to negotiate. I'm sorry, but the answer is no. It's a big fat no, because that means that any terrorist organization, you know, including Hamas, could say like, okay, hold on a second. So... Mm-hmm. If I was to pursue nuclear ambitions, does it mean that I get delisted? If I if I acquire weapons of mass destruction, does it mean that I get delisted? You know, if I'm a good boy and, and promise, like, you know, sir, that I would not use it in the future? Seriously? I don't like that argument. It's very dangerous. We're setting a, a, a legal precedent. And, and I don't think that there should be room, you know, we should not negotiate with terror on that level. You know, in far as, like, we're changing the law and, and changing the definition of terror to fit a political agenda. No, so certain things need to be immovable. And, you know, the definition of terror is one of those things. It's a concept. It's a, it's a legal term that needs to stick and not be party to, you know, uh, the democratic, you know, narrative or the Republican narrative. I don't care what it is. It needs to, it needs to be protected. Yeah, no, I think the, the, the prospect of delisting the IRGC is absolutely outrageous. Um, in regards to what you were saying about, you know, the listing or delisting being a political decision, this is a little bit of a, of a diversion. But what do you think about the decision to list and delist in regards to the Houthis in Yemen? Because right, right before, you know, Trump left office, Pompeo slapped them, you know, with that label on the list and mm. Biden immediately undid it simply because it would that designation would cause such massive suffering to the Yemeni people because of the inability to organize aid in the region. Yeah. Um, so what do you, I think it's really tough cost-benefit analysis it in is, terms it of, is. so what um, do you think about that? For the in opposition Yemen, to what you were saying about the IRGC. Yeah, IRGC's. I'm going to say, I still stand by what I say. However, with the Houthis, is ever so slightly different in the sense that they're not a fully-fledged terrorist organization, in the sense that they don't have um, a genocidal agenda per se outside of their borders. So there's there's a slight there's a slight difference there. They uh, yes, it's targeted. I mean, their yeah. slogan is pretty. I know, <laughs> I know, I know. But what I mean is that so far they haven't acted on it, other than you know uh, bombing the crap out of Saudi Arabia like once in a while. Um, but you know, at the same time, they are at war with Saudi Arabia. So I'm not saying that is justified, but you know, they haven't behaved like a defi- like a you know. Um, like a de facto terrorist organization just yet. They haven't hit all the, all the, you know, all the boxes. So it's kind of like, you know, uh, we could be slightly more liberal about it, but it's, it's slightly different. However, I disagree with the delisted that, you know, I think that they should have been listed as a terrorist organization. That's my personal opinion. I understand why there were still some leeways to why we could delist them. Um, because again, it's not, you can't compare the Houthis to Hamas. So we need to be we need to be also careful not to just slap terrorist organization to anyone that we disagree with. And uh, so far they haven't, you know, they didn't blow up anything in London or Paris or anywhere else and 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 say that that was, you know, this is our political agenda. They haven't done that. Uh, yes, they targeted uh, you know innocent people and killed them and they committed acts of genocide. Yes, they did that. Um, whether or not this this was done within the framework of terrorism, 
is an open discussion still. So I think that the jury is still out on this one. I'm not sure. Um, I disagree with the delisting because uh, I don't think it's helping. But I understand why it's, like, what it was done. So and my kid just went through. You're on live television, honey. No, that's okay. No, that's okay. No, I, I <laughs> have my dog. Like, oblivious to what just happened. No, that's fine. No, no, that's fine. I have sometimes my dogs come over and I just pick that, them that, up and just. That's make just that part my kids. So like, just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> should I call everyone else and just like coming in? Yeah, that's fine. We don't I mind. Just have it. We to. don't mind. No, no. It makes it no, no. It makes it more. It makes it more lively. It's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We we. This is not like a. We did. We're just like having fun. It's fine. Um, it's more informal. We're a lot less formal than other shows, so this is completely fine. We do that all the time. Um. What was I saying? Oh yeah. So when it comes to the um, the listing, the arg the pushback against that is like, okay, sometimes okay. So the delisting itself, we understand that yes, IRGC is a terrorist organization. So are the Houthis. So is Hamas. So is Bullah, Okay, but instead of us being, we are trying to do a cost benefit analysis. Even if IRGC, just like with the Houthis delisting them even though they are a terrorist group delisting them was because of doing a cost benefit analysis figuring out what the benefits of keeping them under the list is relative to all the human misery for the yemeni civilians we delisted them not because they're not bad people but we delisted them because we needed to to get to be able to get all these ngos have access to the civilians in yemen similarly yeah. with irgc some would argue um is that um, from a from a Biden administration perspective, okay, um, they need to get less and they need to re reduce their involvement in the Middle East. They have tried fixing things in the Middle East and being involved, and everything they touched has turned into ashes <laughs> for uh, the past for the past twenty or thirty years. Yeah, like they have they haven't had a good experience with Iraq. They haven't had a good experience with really? Afghanistan. They I thought it went swimmingly. Okay. I'm just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. And like, they're like, we have we have Russia and China to worry about. Exactly. Be... Exactly. Yeah. But here, here's, here's the thing. I agree with everything that you said. I agree. And I get it. Uh, however, because America decided that it wanted to play, you know, a power broker and basically, you know, use military interventionism thinking, not only are we going to export our democracy, but we're going to fix the world problem. And then we're going to create new markets for ourselves. Because let's not just say it wasn't like a selfless agenda. Like, you know, there they, they were corporate interests, you know, involved in, in that way of thinking. Um, the question is that should they have done it or not? And, you know, would the world be better off? It, it did happen. So, you know, trying to uh, theorize whether or not they should have whatever. It doesn't matter because they, they've done it. Um, so... Should they leave now? And I understand the urge. I mean, um, you would leave you would leave a vacuum. We all know what happens when there's a vacuum in the Middle East. I mean, you know, hello Yemen, Syria, hello Afghanistan. What has happened since you know America left Afghanistan? You literally served God's victory on a platter to radicals because they see it and they understand it as we and God, you know had a victory over the apostate, the West. That's how they understand it. And we literally gave that to them. And that they're going to run with it for like the next 20 years saying, you know, we had like, you know, flip-flops and, you know, God was with us and the angels came and helped us, you know, to, uh, to um, basically make a super military power bow to our will. And to some extent, they are right. That's exactly what happened. Minus the angels and, you know, whatever. Um, 
they did happen. So do you really want America to say, like, to call it quit and say, I'm just going to retreat behind my borders and I'm going to let Russia and China, let me repeat that, Russia and China, okay, to just like divide, you know, the Middle East up amongst themselves? Because that's what's going to happen. It's already happening. I mean, Russia and China are, are playing, and Iran are, are actually playing very dangerous games in Africa. Like in, in Eritrea and Ethiopia, there's like a battle of will. You know, Iran is like literally showing up in Ethiopia, Israel is freaking out, saying, like, uh, I don't think so. Um, there's, there's a lot that is being done. So America, because America decided once upon a time to intervene, then I got news for you. You can't leave, because if you do, it's not only the end of the region in terms of um, the status quo in between Russia, you know, China, and, and the West, but it's the, it's the end of the American dream. That's it, it's over. You know more, uh, you know more superpowers, so you would need to be okay with that. Uh, and um, don't do it <laughs> because we don't want a world where America doesn't have some kind of a say. It's it's not it's it's not a good uh, ending to that story. It cannot happen. So you're gonna have to man up and and realize that we might have you know made many mistakes, but let's not make the biggest one of all, which is to leave and let like a massive gap. And then who knows what's gonna come into it. And when it comes to the Middle East, nothing good ever comes into a vacuum ever. What about the theory that the best way to control or a country is to just trade with them a lot so that your economies get intermingled and you depend on each other's success? Mm -hmm. um, and then instead, of, and that way, more people that they can't like pr people who are more interested in prosperity of their countries will have an upper hand over people who are more ideological in countries by giving them trade and, you know, removing the barriers of trade uh, will basically shift the power from an uh, a country that is run by ideological uh, people more towards people that are in line with seeing the country grow and mm -hmm. prosper. Wouldn't that like, wouldn't that be a better way? Like, uh -huh. Yeah, it worked after World War II. Like um, United States, basically, instead of like, you know, after World War One, the world decided to punish Germany, and we saw what happened after that. We had got World War Two out of that, right? Mm. But after World War Two, you know, the Allied countries decided to build up Germany and Japan, and now they are very advanced economies, and they're buddy buddies and the best allies of United States. And like, maybe we should use that model instead of like trying to isolate the country and suffocate it and make it suffer that wouldn't that actually create more radicals and more fundamentalists maybe if we just open the door and trade with them it will encourage the people the people that would benefit from that it will encourage them to come into power mm. instead what do you think I, I would say yes uh by the way germany and japan you know were not i mean build themselves back up i mean they were not helped you know, they were like crippled by, you know, economics. I mean, they had to pay debt back. So it's not like we helped a lot. You know, we allowed them to, but, you know, they built themselves back up because they decided to move away from, you know, any imperialistic, like, agenda. So that was a conscious decision that they made to move away from war and fascism. That's important because it does matter. So the way that like, Germany is what it is today because it decided to, to change, you know, its way of, of being and thinking. Um, so it's not like we did not, the West did not build Germany back up. Germany did that. It's, don't, don't take it away from that. Um, but anyway, 
Um, I would say yes, I agree with you. Trade is always the best thing. This is why we have the Abrahamic Accords, by the way, and this is why it's working. And they, you know, eventually thinking of, you know, creating some kind of a NATO type of alliance, you know, militarily speaking, to further those ties and to really kind of entrench this idea that Israel, you know, is a friendly country and a, and a reliable partner for, you know, countries such as Saudi Arabia, Morocco, uh, you know, Sudan, blah, blah, blah. Um, now, in normal terms, I would tell you that, you know, trading with, the, with you know, your neighbors is always a good way, uh, you know, which is why in medieval time people used to intermarry so that, you know, this idea that we have a common, you know, vested interest and that, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to bash me because we're related and we have, you know, trade deals and it's just like you would harm yourself, I'm harming me. Um, that works when you're not, again, when your partner is on the same kind of, you know, um, playing field as you, when you have some kind of a common understanding of what needs to happen in order for both society to flourish, okay? And in the West, we kind of get this down uh, for the most part, you know, in relation to our neighbors and the way that, you know, for example, America, you know, deals with Mexico and Canada and things like that, you know, it works more or less. Now, when you're talking to a fascist, uh, countries such as that of the Islamic Republic of Iran, it doesn't work anymore. Because then you are, by partnering yourself with a country such as this, you're paying lip service to fascism. You're basically helping fascism thrive and force itself onto your society and offer it longevity. So my, me, my, my way of thinking would be, when we're dealing with the likes of North Korea or Iran, is to isolate those countries to the point of suffocation, I'm talking about the regime, to politically sanction the crap out of them, uh, to make sure that they do not last. Because you can't allow, you know, in the name of peace, to allow fascism to thrive. Because fascism, you know, if fascism needs walls and needs to expand. You know, this is part of the ideology. So for the sake of a temporary peace, uh, to allow for this ideology to grow and thrive, would be containing, you know, future generations to fight a greater war. Um, so my idea is like you need to uh, hold Iran accountable for what it is doing, um, you know, before international law um, and slap sanctions onto it when they broke the law and make sure that, you know, we made an example out of them. Now, the terrible reality of that is that in the process of doing this, you're condemning millions of people to object poverty. Um, but I don't have a solution to that. that. That's the problem. So if anyone could find a third way where, you know, innocent people would not have to suffer, Sign me up um, because I don't want anyone to suffer. But the reality, you know, we live in a world where, you know, injustice is 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 uh, is a thing. Uh, a lot of the time, life is unfair. Um, but we don't. I mean, we did not come up with any other solution. So if you have one, go for it. But to to plead peace and say that let's be friends with the Islamic Republic of Iran, I I'm I, I can't, I'm not playing in that playground. I can't. So I heard some before I uh, go to Susanna because she has some questions. But um, some very smart people are trying to come up with this thing called uh, smart sanctions, and Ooh. a lot of people are like working on it. And it's for some very I don't know complicated, maybe financial, figuring out how to come up with specific sanctions that hurts individuals. Um, specific individuals rather than an entire nation. And it's a very complicated way, way thing on how to figure out on how to do that best. Like, I don't know, maybe like sanctioning certain individual with multiple degrees of separation so that not only he's sanctioned, anybody who touches him also becomes sanctioned. So you, yeah, and, so you create like yeah. pariahs without, without the system. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah I mean, they're... if they could like freeze the assets and make sure that they can't even have access to the internet, great. Well, yeah, I don't know. I don't know how the details around how it's supposed to work, but some people are trying to figure out how to target individuals rather than mm -hmm. entire populations. But I don't know how far we've gotten with that. But Susanna, go ahead. Well, it's it's very interesting um, to hear you talk about, you know, like how we can't negotiate with the state in its current state and its its current iteration, um, given its fascistic inherent fascistic nature. Um, which then raises the question, and I know we before the show we talked about um, this a little bit, and I don't know if it's too early to talk about this, but ideas, I'm very curious about your ideas about building up a legitimate, well-structured Iranian opposition. Wow. So now now you just said that, so everybody's going to be thinking that I'm actually like the architect of the opposition in Iran. Um, <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I got powers. Um, I think, look, and I don't, I'm not, I'm not well versed in the opposition in the sense that I, I don't, I'm not privy to, you know, um, what is it that they're working on in terms of the structure, what structure they even, you know, they're imagining, you know, for when after the regime falls. Um, but I know that they, they, they're lacking in the, um, there's no real consensus as to what would happen. You know, mm -hmm. what, if, what would it look like, you know, after the regime, you know, is gone? Would we have a parliamentary monarchy? Would we have a republic? What, what would it be? We don't know. And I don't think that Iranians know either because they didn't have the opportunity to have that conversation openly. Um, so I think that we need to prepare ourselves for, you know, a transition a period uh, where I would imagine someone with kind of, um, with mind, um, the reign of powers for a little bit. Um, I don't know. So that would mean like you have to dissolve the Islamic Republic completely because we can't allow for anything to just remain like that. That needs to go. Now, would they go back to, you know, um, the previous system, like, you know, under Reza Shah, for example, and, and allow him to um, kind of resume his power's legacy and then, you know, to bring about a republic instead? I don't know what that would even look like. I don't even know how legally you would go about doing something like that. Whether you have a transitional council, you know, with all the members of the opposition sitting there to try to kind of come up with uh, a new constitution, because you know they're going to have to write down a constitution. Um, yeah, it's going to be complicated. Um, and the problem, I don't know how long it would take. And again, yeah, it's you right. take the risk of having a vacuum of power, so it could be dangerous. But I mean, the 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 alternative is uh, not to think about so. Yeah, I, I think it's extremely difficult because right now the most organized and structured opposition is the MEK. No, MEK. no, 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 structured. No, no, no. They give you, the, they keep they're projecting this because, you know, they have like the like of, um, what's his name? Uh, you know, the former mayor of New York that just showed up at one of their... Uh, <laughs> Giuliani. 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 You know, just because you have people like this, you know, they give you this impression of, like, oh, we're so well organized and we have this, you know, cute little rose and there's a conference and a flag, you know, like, you know, we're so well structured. No, 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 it's a cult. It's no, no, cult. I was about to say, they're so a terrorist. They have like political agenda is like, me, 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 look at me, this is my picture, please bow. That's not a political agenda. Uh, and they have an army of little trolls, you know, uh, behind the computers to try to give this, this uh, impression that they're also very popular. In Iran, they are pariah. Nobody gives a shit about them. Yes. They don't care. Yes. They hate them. They're murderers and, and, and whatever. And they, it's, um, no. No, the MEK is just like, it's not even a joke. It's like this Scientology. Like, seriously. 
No, yeah, you yeah, imagine Tom Brady running for the presidency? Like, please. Come on. I no, guess no, no, I just we, mean, we don't... in terms of like they do have a supposed Congress, they do have um yeah, they, they, were, they were able to do, have do that in my UN. living room. Sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. But you know, anyone could do in the living room, slap the word Congress and then put a big flag and say, like, I'm running like the opposition now. I mean I could do that too, but uh, yeah, and, and no, that doesn't make it fair. On the I other mean, hand, it's, it's like we have yeah. that and then we have a lot of people who are general opposition, but there's just such a culture of conspiracy yeah. that we were discussing that yeah. it is it, it it is extremely corrosive to structured and productive organizing. Because if there is dissent, then that's seen as, oh, you're controlled opposition of the regime, which is so toxic. You can't build anything off of that. That's like trying to build the foundation on sand. Um, but that's, so what, we, that's, the, that's the kind of um, culture that the regime has fostered. Mm -hmm. Just to show you the toxicity of that regime, this is exactly what they want. Because by doing that, they're controlling the opposition in a way by preventing any possible popular consensus or any rallying behind an, an idea uh, or even a cause. So they just keep saying like, you know, this one works for that one and they're lying and da 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 and then people don't know what to do and they're scared and so they do nothing. I think I was having an interesting conversation with Armin the other day about how this conspiracy culture within the opposition is almost its own way of like cancel culture. Like it's yeah. permeated um, to the extent that if because like people go after Masih Alinejad all the time. One, because she used to be a reformist, and two, because of her popularity now. Like they can't conceptualize the fact that she's mainstream now off of you know her connections or or her her merit. It's that there's something going on, right? There's something more sinister, um, and so they they discredit and shut out any of her accomplishments or anything that she does do to bolster the voices of people living in Iran because she must be controlled. She must be on their side to be able to reach this height, right? But it's just cancel culture. She's a woman too, so she's going to face that kind of uh, you know uh, thinking because they can't even possibly comprehend that a woman you know, could be not only courageous and smart, but, you know, well-educated and actually have, you know, the ambition to speak for an entire people, her people. Mm, yeah, mm, there's that too. Mm. Yeah. Sure, uh, just one one commentary on the MEK. So, like, I mean, when you compare them to the Scientologists, I mean, yeah, they're a cult. I call them the cult of Maryam Rajavism because they yeah. literally worship her. Um, but Scientology is also, as as cuckoo as they are, they're also very well organized. <laughs> I mean, I mean, yeah, I was comparing the yeah, cookiness, yeah. not so much the organization. Yes, you are. The, yeah, yeah. the Scientology is very well structured. And if the MEK was like that, I would be scared, but they're not. And, and they, they're like a dying breed, too, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Not, but like, I don't know if you've like seen their... new people. I should send you some videos of what they, their, their annual events and. The, the thing like, I've just... seen some of them and it's just I, I've watched this documentary um that yeah. uh some a French a French guy did because you know they are they they hosted by the French I don't know what my country is doing yeah I I, <laughs> I don't know what's up with that um so you went money. to this yeah I, I guess so I, I don't know I what it is Saudi, it's, Saudi, it's Saudi money it's probably yeah. Saudi money yeah. there's a there's a lot of things there's a lot of moving parts to like why the mvk is tolerated but anyway so he did this documentary and it's like it's insane because even the mayor of the city where they are is like not you know they're like, they're scared to even talk to them those people are just literally you know certified yeah. nut jobs i mean to the point where i think that ayatollah Khamenei next to them is like you know saying 
Yeah, and actually Khamenei yeah. uses, like, the Islamic Republic of Iran likes to use them because they're like, look, if we huh. if we get yeah, rid yeah, of yeah. us, yeah. this is what you have to deal with. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I know, so they're like, like, we do now, but no, yeah. look, you have, you, have, you have people now, I think, that are kind of, like, coming up. But it's, uh, again, like what Susanna was saying, it's it's uh, there's so much toxicity around that, and there's uh, there's a lack of trust, um, and the you know it's just so easy for them to just think that you have a nefarious agenda, that you're serving the interests of another country, that you know there's always something necessarily bad about you know um, that you're not that you're lying, that you're not saying exactly what mm -hmm. you want to say. It's very difficult for people to get behind anybody, um, and actually like, but I think it's just it's it's a lack of hope. Uh, because they've been betrayed so many times that, you know, they, they just, um, and they're scared too. They're scared that, you know, maybe the RSGC is actually taking control over the opposition, like, and that, you know, um, they're going to end up in jail if they were to come out in support of, you know, this organization or that organization. There's a lot of work to do. And I think that a good, we need good old fashioned political PR and kind of like, you know, um, to create like little ad posts and echo chambers for people to kind of, you know, um, feel a bit more comfortable and, normalize you know the idea of an opposition in iran i think the lack of legitimate and well-structured opposition is i mean obviously like the one of the main um deterrents towards regime change but not even like um the fact that that's necessary but the lack of replacement makes it in the u.s's interest to not have regime change in Iran. I don't think the U.S. wants regime change in Iran. We don't want another vacuum. Uh, but it's going to happen. It's not, like, the, the, the situation is not... I think that they, they, they might have tried to uh, kind of uh, contain the situation, but I think everyone... I mean, maybe not everyone, because Biden is Biden. Um, you know, it, they, they, the clock is ticking. Um, you know, so I, I don't... I honestly don't see the regime beyond two, three years. No, I don't, I don't see two, it. three years. Yeah, wow. I, I really don't. I don't like things. I don't know if you've seen this. This um, the the fear factor has been broken. So this, uh, for example, the other day, a friend of mine sent me there was uh, there was seen of a of a teacher somewhere. I think it was up north, where he was going to be uh, arrested by the RSGCs, where the people literally, um, you know, literally beat the crap out of the RSGC. Uh, you know, saying like, you're not going to take him. You're not going to take him. And even the um, the the student union that the university that you know he was speaking on behalf of uh, is backing you up so like you know people are starting to actually say no they're pushing back a lot against the RSGC um, they are very very much hated and then you know there's um, there's a movement kind of coming from the north you know like Azerbaijan area uh, where they, they they kind of like they're pushing and you know in in, in Kurdish areas too there's a, there's a pushback against the RSGC where they're literally getting killed. Uh, you know, they have little militias organized. So there is there is violence in Iran right now. It's just, it's not talked about a lot because, you know, they want to give this impression that everything is under control. It's not, it's not. Um, but, you know, they are, they, they're feeling the heat right now. I know, but their relative, their, their relative power to what the Artish and the IRGC have access to is very, very, very limited. True, but again, you know, uh, any fascist government, I mean, they, you need to have this kind of tacit agreement, um, you know, where power needs to be given, not taken. So the people might, you know, need to, to agree to some level, you know, to kind of give out their power so that the government could function. Um, you know, th this is necessary for any, you know, government to, to be able to do what it needs to do. 
Um, so even in a fascist situation, you know, the people have somewhat to be subservient to uh, the authority that this lake is claiming for itself, correct? Um, when, when that goes, and if the people decide to say, no, I, I'm not playing with, I'm not playing that game anymore. I will not become a party, you know, to to your to your regime or, or give you the power that I hold. Um, it's over. You know, there's a say in 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 France. In well, it's it's Latin, but we say it a lot in France, where we say "vox populi, vox dei," where the voice of the people is the voice of God. And that's true. You know, without without uh, you know the people's support and consensus. There's nothing that Iran's can do. Nothing. They're like they won't survive a day. Um, you know, which is why revolution works. So it, it might be very difficult because again, that the you know the the power play is just profoundly uh, in favor of the Islamic Republic. It doesn't mean that Iranians don't have the power to overturn everything. And it wouldn't take even that much, you know. Uh, if you if if you had like look, remember Egypt. I mean, Mubarak was like the guy that you could not, like he was the pharaoh of Egypt, right? And he he, he was gone in two weeks. Yeah, but we <laughs> I know have... Armin has a lot of disagreement. <laughs> no, I mean, no, I mean, I don't know because I, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen, but I don't think um, there are also many examples throughout history of tyrants who people were not happy with them and they just lasted for a very long time. Like it's not necessarily yeah. a rule. That just because the people are not happy, that means the regime is going to fall. No, no, no. I said it's not about happiness. I was making a comment on: in order for a state to maintain its authority, you need to be subservient to some degree to it, to that authority and recognize it. Okay. When revolutions happen, it's like when you are actively and willing saying no and pushing against that authority and not recognizing that authority and challenging it. That's when revolutions happen. So I'm not saying that, you know, people, obviously people have lived throughout history, just, like, you know, under, under fascism for like generations and even centuries. I mean, the Romans, for example. Um, I just, I just think people of, to some degree agreed to it. I'm just, I'm just thinking like IRGC, um, like has five main pieces. One of those pieces is, you know, the Quds army, uh, which is a small section of the entire IRGC. And that by itself managed to defeat I don't know, ISIS in many battles. Uh, mm -hmm. And I'm just thinking the entirety of IRGC plus Artesh, plus Nirui and Tozami, plus the police versus the people of Iran who don't even have access to the weapons. I mean, even compared to history, modern military equipment is more than enough for 1% of the population to be able to control 99% of the rest of the population. I just don't see... I'm. I'm just trying. To, I actually yeah. have a show about yeah, this impersion. Do you actually yeah. see? Do you see a situation where? Because I, I don't think that it would happen. And I know the. I mean, do you seriously see a situation where um, the the army would like willingly genocide their own people? I don't see it. I mean, they so have. even in Egypt, they did not, that. I know no, they, they have. They have. But no, yeah. I'm not talking about. Uh, remember Egypt? I mean, if you go back to 2011. And you had, you know, I, I'm sure you remembered, you had this kind of standoff, you know, uh, in the bridge. And you had the people versus the military and police, the armed police. And, you know, and they, were, and, they, and they were coming closer and closer and closer. The military got overwhelmed. And I tell you what, they could not do it anymore. They could not do any more shooting. You know, there's a point where you say, I, I can't, I can't. Like, as a, as a person, as a human being, I cannot do that anymore. And they stopped. They, the, the people, not the better leadership. than IRGC because IRGC. The people the, stopped, the, but they, there's only so much that they would be able to do. There's only so much because 
I think they would be either overwhelmed because people would get seriously angry. And, uh, you know, I don't care what weapons you have. I mean, we've seen in Egypt, like there was, there was like people literally going after tanks. I mean, you know, like d don't underestimate the power of the people. Um, and I'm not trying to romanticize a revolution, but, you know, the, the people, first of all, people of Iran would have access to weapons because let's not be fooled, you know, other country would come and chip in. Uh, I'm pretty sure that Iraq would be like uh, seriously like volunteering weapons uh, because they don't like the Islamic Republic of Iran either. Uh, so Iranians would not be fighting alone. Uh, and I'm pretty sure that too, you have, you know, people who are part of the RSGC who hate the regime and are just like yeah. waiting for an opportunity to defect. Um, but they can't do it. So you're going to see some kind of a, of a slide where, you know, people will start to defect. The same thing happened in Egypt. And then you, you can start to see the cracks of the regime. The regime in Iran is not as like whole and together than people make it out to be just because they're projecting that fear okay, factor. Here, if it happens, would you be, ten, do you think me and you 10 years from now could have like a beer in Tehran? <laughs> uh, if I can have pink gin because I don't drink beer, I will do pink gin okay. with you or tequila. If you could do shots of tequila, yeah, okay. I'm there. <laughs> Wait, I drink tequila. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah, they, no, if, we can do, if we can do tequila in, in uh, can you imagine doing tequila like tequila in Mashad? Can we do that? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Catherine, it's my it's my dream to go to Esfahan. We we should go together. <laughs> yeah, it is beautiful. It is gorgeous. Do you think I that's think possible? Like, do you think that would we yeah. like we would live to see the day? Yeah, hundred percent. I, I don't. Oh. I'm gonna let you go there first, though. Like, you can uh, just kind oh, of like get no. out. Yeah, not going. Like, He's not going. <laughs> I don't know if I, I mean, would ever go. I don't know. I would need to. I don't know. I don't know. See, like, even if even if the regime falls, right? I think there's at least 10 million people in Iran that are supporting of this current regime, okay? Out of 80 million, I would think, like, at least 10 million of them are like that. And out of that 10 million, there's at least 1 million of them that are ready to sacrifice their own lives even for such a, for Khamenei or something like that. Yeah, so? at least one million. At least one million. Well, out of them. So I'm just like, even if the regime falls, I don't even think like, even like, let's say the regime falls and there's the next government is not like another dictatorial uh, mm. Shia regime. Let's say there's a secular democracy comes to Iran one day. I still don't know if I would say feel safe in Iran because one of yeah, the, yeah, just one of those one million to just come and like, oh, this is Armin. Like, maybe let me just go find him and like, I don't know go stabby stabby on him i don't know like so i don't know if that, that would be a good idea yeah no i yeah. said so just like wait out just let other people go first and just be like you know. no. <laughs> but if, they, right. if they don't come out of shish kebab then you could go <laughs> so i have i have i have one more question before we um end the stream i just want to know what do you think let's say the deal will go through and we don't know what's going to happen to what's is what should Israel do to defend itself? Uh, what measure it should take? Uh, see, I don't, I don't like this kind of questions because I'm not Israeli. Uh, and I, I, I personally think that it's not my place to, to tell Israel what to do um, or even tell Israeli how they should conduct their affair. Cause I don't leave their reality day to day. And I think, you know, I would like to be respectful uh, of Israel because Israel keeps getting like talked over all the time and it's just I don't want to add to that um so I could give you my personal opinion but that's coming from someone who's never you know who's you know on the outside of it uh, and never had to suffer under bombing so it's 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 complicated for me to have like a good grasp of what reality feels like in Israel uh and and what they would want to you know for the future 
Um, but I think that Israel would 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 stay true to the kind of commitment that it made, you know, since you know um, the very beginning, which is to protect life, uh, which is to try to uh, you know to exert restraint in its response and be tactical rather than you know reactive and violent to uh, acts of aggression. Um, I think that what it's been doing so far in terms of targeting, you know, um, nuclear sites and everything that goes, you know, with that has been um, the least um, destructive, um, you know, methods in terms of containing the threat without, you know, claiming too many lives and, and having casualties on the ground. Um, I think that it has been the right path and I think they will continue to do so. Uh, and to work with countries in the region in terms of, uh, you know, Abrahamic Accords to try to, you know, build stronger ties and make the region more stable and safer for everyone, not just for its own people. Uh, and to try to, you know, create a buffer that is so robust and strong that the Islamic Republic of Iran will come up against, you know, the Great Wall of China, so to speak, and not have any grip. Um, I think that's what it needs to do. But if, if I could just add one more thing, it's just... Um, whoever is listening, and regardless of how you know people feel about Israel, people need to understand one thing: is that Israel is a sovereign state. That, according to international law, it has every right to defend itself against threats within its territories, however it sees fit. And I'm sick and tired of people telling Israel what it should or shouldn't do, and you know, crying for you know, um, you know, projecting you know this kind of victimhood. Um, narrative onto the Palestinians thinking that they're doing the Palestinians a service when the Palestinians are suffering under Hamas and have been hijacked and being blackmailed by Hamas. If people want to truly, you know, defend the Palestinian cause, what they need to understand is that in order to do so, they need to make sure that Israel is free of terrorism. And then we can have a proper conversation. And also being pro-Palestinians doesn't mean being anti-Zionist and being pro-Zionist doesn't mean that you're anti-Palestinians. The two can coexist. So defending Israel, the Israeli cause, is actually defending the Palestinians' right to have a better future. And that is important. It's not a zero-sum game here. That's it. Would, would you be interested in one, coming over and talking more about the whole Israel-Palestine thing at some point? Uh, yeah, I live with that shit. Yuval <laughs> <laughs> is one of our Israeli Atheist Republic members, and he's giving you a standing ovation in the live chat. <laughs> uh, thank you. I'm just like, well, yeah, I'm Talking about standing ovations, Bojack, Bojack is saying that if you <laughs> if you become the leader of the opposition, no. we will conquer nah. Tehran in three days. Nah. No, 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 no. I'm just like I'm gonna. No, I'm okay. I'm good. By the way, uh, I just want to thank this uh, secular psychiatrist for constantly donating to us, and also an anonymous person who keeps donating. So thank you for that. Uh, yes, thank has you for the donations. Thank you so much for the donations. Yeah, keep uh, donating to, to them. It's just like brilliant. Go, go, go. <laughs> thank you. Thank I'm you. like your little publicist. Like, woohoo. <laughs> oh, yeah. And also, but guys, one more time for the people who didn't weren't here at the beginning. Please go read Catherine's articles on the Times of Israel. Are you going to publish more articles for the Times of Israel? Yeah, I'm actually working on a piece about, you know, what I just said uh, about Israel's right to defend its borders and uh, the theory of mine that I have that defending Israel's right to defend its borders, however it sees fit, uh, is actually, um, you know, defending um, the world security. It would make the world a much safer place if Israel could be left alone and people to stop being, uh, you know, so anti-Semitic about, you know, their disapproval of Israel and, you know, is Israel is a tiny little country, leave us alone. 
Okay, so when you when you write that, can you send it to us so we could read it and then yeah, we'll come sure. talk about it? For sure. Yeah, okay. I need I need you guys to publicize my work. Okay, we will. you should write you should write to the Times of Israel and say like she's wonderful, like oh my god, like she'd be so proud. I actually oh, do really like your writing. Like I do really recommend people go look at Catherine's writing at the Times of Israel or just in general. Like you have um a really good and I don't know how to like I just really like your literary voice like the oh, way you, you actually oh, that, express that actually ideas. means a lot that thank you I really appreciate that Aww. okay guys so guys go to the times of Israel and message times of Israel and tell them that this was you really enjoyed this article so that they know that <laughs> yep um Qasim Yuval is, is in the live chat and he's saying mam nam junam thank you my dear and Gossam, who's one of our atheist republic members in Iran says Zoroastrians have saved the Jews once in history now it's your turn to save us <laughs> like pick up that flame like go for it like we're behind you go um, Qasim had a question regarding, I don't know if you want to answer this because it was more related to our previous episode. He was he was just curious about why you attended the Arabian uh, pilgrimage. If you do you want to quickly address Yeah, the, as uh, I was invited. So like it's usually like my <laughs> I'm just like <laughs> I just if I get invited somewhere that sounds interesting, I'm gonna go. Um hmm. yeah, I wanted to see the Arabian pilgrimage because it's like 20 plus million people. It's a lot bigger than Hajj. Uh, it's in Iraq, you know, uh, I kind of wanted to uh, to have an understanding of what that meant on the ground. Um, and I knew that a lot of uh, Iranian, you know, um, head of states and like important figures would be there too. And that would be an opportunity for me to actually meet them and have a chat and a kind of informal way. Um, because it's not like, you don't have like a lot of like Western, you don't have a lot of media per se. So it's kind of more like, you know, meeting behind closed doors and, you, you know, people feel a lot more relaxed. It's a, it's a pilgrimage and they kind of open up a bit more. And I, I was just like super curious because how often are you invited to see behind the veil of Shia Islam and kind of like have an understanding of what goes up, what goes down behind closed doors. So, yeah. Yeah, of course I want to. Because I can't, I mean, there's no way I'm going to go to Mecca ever. So I was thinking like I could do that one. Why not go to Mecca? Nah, Saudi Arabia. No, 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 good in Saudi Arabia. Yeah. <laughs> I said Saudi Arabia. I'm not. Actually, okay. you know, like, uh, I'm not trying to like, you know, go back on the list of his good favors. But um, yeah, I used to be super critical of Mohammed bin Salman, and I, I'm not saying I changed my mind. Uh, but I think like he's um, he's mm. he's actually doing some good stuff over, like you know. So it's not just okay. all bad. I'm just what? gonna give him that. Oh, I mean, there's no nobody's pure evil, but yeah, Muhammad exactly, bin exactly. Did, and I think I kind he's of pretty like, close. <laughs> but I think Muhammad bin Salman. Do you know what in I think? My it opinion is, is pretty, it's pretty close. Yeah. Uh, what I think it is is that I think he's also, and I'm not saying he's a victim because he's not a victim. Uh, but I think he's like a prisoner of a system, and um, you know that he has not architected that he kind of inherited, and then he's doing what he can to remain in power while doing some of the stuff that he feels unnecessary. I mean, I mean, all evil people have uh, are victims of their environment. So, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying I'm not like Khashoggi. We know like uh, I'm not I'm not trying to like no, you know, mostly Yemen, mostly Yemen. Well, yeah, I mean, we yeah. already talked about that. But yeah. but I mean, like if I if I was to choose what kind of friend I would like to have in the region, I think that he's, um, you know, I'm not saying he's a partner, but he's he's um he's someone we can talk to and have discussions, like you know, reasonable, rational discussion. He's he's a he's a rational person. So you could 
you know, he's not a evil, not a crazy rational guy. person. Maybe. Yeah, <laughs> but he's not. He's not. He's not. Uh, he's not a religious lunatic. So that you know, mm. this is a plus. I mean, lunacy comes in all forms, not just religious. <laughs> that is <laughs> laughing. Look, we're trying to look. We're so low. We're trying. We're trying. We're trying. So this is like, and but there you okay. go. I'm just gonna. I, I still can't go to Saudi Arabia. You make me say things. Like, still fourth now. I, I just I I have such hatred for that man that I can't let like I, you know because of yeah. because of his role in the greatest humanitarian crisis that we are aware of, of you know in yeah. our lifetime right I, I you know I don't think there's any way to wash that with anything um, and I'm not saying other other parties are not responsible you know Iran the Islamic Republic is responsible the Houthis are responsible Guys, America have, is responsible I have but, to go. Yeah, yeah. I have okay, to because okay, okay. I have the phone okay. call that we talked about like in nine yes, minutes. Yes, yes, yes. And All it's right, not Mossad. <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. Okay, okay, we'll end this in, we'll end it here. Thank you so much, Catherine. This was really, welcome. really Thank good. Thank you, guys. All it right. was so much bye. fun. Thank bye. you. Bye. See you again soon. Bye, bye, bye. 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 Okay, guys, before we leave the stream, like the video. This was pretty good. This was pretty informative. Susanna, wouldn't you say that it was a good oh, interview? Oh, it was fantastic. It, it was fantastic. We did I a great job. We, yeah, this was really informative. So, guys, please, 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 please do not leave without liking this video. I think we deserve a like. Susanna, do you not agree? Don't we deserve a like? Oh, definitely. We deserve a like. And even if, if you want to be extra generous, maybe also share with somebody and tell people to watch this interview okay please help us grow this channel we would very much appreciate that oh yeah and look before, are... before we leave secular sakai donated another five dollars so thank you so oh much. oh my god thank you so much secular sakai and secular rarity um is saying wow great stream thank you so much and also yeah, secular sakai is also saying awesome stream and uh, soha is doing all our work for us for some reason she keeps being doing all the work and reminding people in the live chat to like and subscribe and hit the bell button and all of that. Thank you so much so for all of that. Anyways, guys, we're going to head out. Thank you so much for watching this and we'll see you on the next stream. Bye. Okay. Bye.